Morning, church. Let's read God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up, from, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loud-mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today sinful, undeserving, Lord, of your grace. But yet you have given us a reason and a purpose to gather before you in unity, Lord. With the blood of Jesus Christ who has washed us clean and given us hope this morning. Lord, I pray that you humble our hearts this morning, that your truth, which is alive and active, God, your word, may that bear fruits in our hearts. Lord, help us, Lord, to live it out. And not it may not be a passing word, but a word that would yield, Lord, the spirits, the fruits of the spirits, Lord, as we go about our weeks. Lord, there's so much of our hearts that are not of yours, and I pray, Father, that today we will come standing before the cross, knowing, Lord, that while we were still sinners, you have redeemed us, died for us, God. And it's only by your blood, Lord, that we're able to come before you and receive, God, this gift of grace, God. So help us, Lord, to come together as a church, to receive your word. May it be our anchor, anchor for our praises, anchor for our hope in times of darkness. And help us, Lord, to remember your presence in the little and the big things that we do every day, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, thank you, Ping, so much. This particular doctor had a wonderful bedside manner, particularly with children. He really endeared himself to children. One of the doctors that worked with him said of him, quote, he was capable of being so kind to the children. They became so fond of him. He would bring them sweets. He would think of small details in their daily lives. And he would do things that we would genuinely admire, end quote. Now, this particular doctor he's describing would introduce himself as Uncle Mengel or Uncle Mengeli, otherwise known as the evil Nazi doctor known as the angel of death, Joseph Mengel, who performed many barbaric experiments, research, and surgeries on children. Because we do have children with us, I won't give you examples, but you can find them out quickly online. As I was thinking of this, I thought what I just described is a vis visceral picture of how false teachers work. 
we, read, we heard read that they creep in unnoticed. They have a wonderful bedside manner. They're so winsome. And then through perverting the grace of God and denying the genuine lordship of Jesus Christ, they bring people to utter ruin. Now we hit the section in Jude. It's a thick section. It's a dense section. Verses 5 through 16, where these false teachers are going to be put on blast and described in great detail. There are six references to the Old Testament in this section. There's a couple references to ancient, non-inspired, non-canonical Jewish literature they would have been aware of, as well as six or seven natural illustrations from everyday life. Because there's so much here, frankly, I thought, man, there is a great potential for us to get uh, lost in the weeds, to lose the forest in the midst of the trees. So I've boiled it down to this. We're going to walk the text, but four things we can hang these verses on. Four things I want us to walk away with. And the title is, Four Ways We Should Respond to False Teachers. Four Ways We Should Respond to False Teachers, all right? So we're going to dive in at verse 5. And the first thing I want us to see, and if you have a bulletin, you'll see this point, that we should remember the past as we look at false teachers in the present. That's Jude's point. That we should remember the past as we look at false teachers in the present. In these first verses, in this section, he's going to give us three Old Testament examples to show that what is happening now is nothing new. It's happened in the past. And that people who do that will receive the same judgment and destruction today as those in the past did for their false teaching and apostasy. Now, he begins here with these words. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Stop. What is he assuming there? What is he assuming of the people that he's writing the letter to. That they know the scripture, right? His expectation is that they would know scripture and then be able to apply that scripture to what's going on in their contemporary times for, them, for us 2,000 years ago. He's expecting them to know scripture. We, we ought to know scripture, right? We, as the people of God, we should be people of the word of God. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew, you should know Scripture and you should apply it. And, and by the way, let me just add to that. The, the beautiful thing about the Bible is it lifts us out of our own tunnel vision we all get, don't we? Rescuing us from our own fallen thoughts about issues and rescuing us from the lies peddled as truth by culture around us. He goes to the first example then. Example number one, verse five. That Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. He's saying, do you remember what happened to unbelief in Israel? And if you've read through the scriptures, you would know, and you've heard this probably preached here many times, that Israel was in slavery under Egyptian bondage. You remember that. They got rescued, right? All the plagues and the exodus and all that awesome stuff. But it wasn't that much longer. They are dancing before what? A golden calf. They're committing idolatry while Moses is up on the mountain 
getting the law of God. And for that apostasy, if you've read it, they were what? He says right here, destroyed. Apostasy leads people to destruction. He's saying that to the church then to remember what happened in the past. And by the way, just quickly, and this is pretty significant, but I don't have much time to stay here. Who does it say saved them out of the land of Egypt? Jesus. The Lord of the Old Testament is none other than Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, you drank from the rock, Paul does there, that rock which is Jesus. So when people say Jesus is not deity or God, how, what do you do with this? Old Testament says it was the Lord doing that. Here it says Jesus. How do you put that together? Jesus is Lord. Now, here's a second question he says. You remember what happened to the angels who left their proper dwelling? Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay with their own, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He's saying, not only do you remember what happened to unbelieving Israel, do you remember what happened to the angels who stepped outside the boundaries that I gave them? Now, we don't have the ground to cover all the different viewpoints on what exactly that was. It's uh, likely referenced in Genesis 6, and it seems, I'll just say this, that whatever these angels did, it was so deviant and likely sexual, that God inflicted on them, those particular angels, a punishment he hasn't even yet inflicted on the rest of the fallen angels. He says, again, that he has put them in eternal chains. They're on lockdown right now. And I'm glad those demons aren't free right now. As, as, as much as there's demonic action, I'm glad these demons are on lockdown. And I think, remember the Gerasen demoniac? We went through this uh, a couple months ago in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and, and the, what do the demons cry out? Have you come to send us to the abyss? Don't send us there. That's exactly what they're referencing right there. And for their anti-authority, you ain't telling me nothing. I'm going to step over any boundary I want to. They are facing gloomy darkness, eternal judgment. So that's the second thing he wants to remember from the past as they look at false teachers in the present. Then you have the third example, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I think most here are familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What were they punished for, Sodom and Gomorrah? According to this text right here. Sexual immorality, right? What else does it say? And what's he talking about with unnatural desire? What is he referencing, do you think? Homosexuality. So there are, there are, there are natural desires that, that God has given us, which still can be sin, right? If you don't, if, if you don't um, seek to fulfill those natural desires in legitimate ways, i.e. covenantal marriage, one man, one woman, and all that. But then there are unnatural desires, that's what he's talking about here, that are never right in any direction. They're just unnatural. And they, he says they serve as an example for that 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, so, so what's the point right here? Well, to switch metaphors with that metaphor of fire, don't play with fires. What are you saying to them? Steer clear of this stuff. You should look at your Bible, connect what you see here to what's going on today, and say, oh, no, oh, oh, oh no, I am not going in that direction. Remember the past as you look at false teachers in the present, point one. Number two, this gets a little deeper here. Beware of their tactics. Beware of their tactics. Yet in like manner, these people also. Again, that's that link between remembering the past, right, as you look at false teachers in the present. He's applying the past to present teachers. Now, beware of their tactics. And he starts off with their biggest tactic, I think. It says... Yet in like manner, these people also doing what? Relying on what? Their dreams. False teachers often claim to have special insight. I have a special word for you. Whether it's a dream or not. And God does give dreams, and he uses dreams all over the world. But, but these people rely on their dreams that others don't have. Okay? Whether they're, they're literal dreams that they say they have or just something that God laid on their heart. And, and, and what a gift they are to the unenlightened like us who haven't had those visions and prophecies. And through that, seek to manipulate others and control them and change God's word. It's quite clever in getting an upper hand on others, right? How, well, the Lord told me. Oh, you're going to tell me the Lord didn't tell me that? Yeah. If it doesn't marry up with the word, it ought not to be heard. Now, I was listening to a guy, he did like a two-hour boot camp on the book of Jude. It was really, really great stuff. Uh, and he talked in that interview about it, uh, in that um, boot camp, it was online two-hour thing, about an interview which I vaguely remember between Oprah and Rob Bell back in 2015. So later on, I went in and Googled the interview and I came up with it. And, and, and this is what happened in this interview with Oprah and Rob Bell. Rob Bell was a preacher in West Michigan for years and now he's doing some other stuff. Oprah asks him this question, when is the church going to turn away from its archaic teaching on sexuality? And Bell answered, well, lots of people are already there. He's right. We think it's inevitable, and we're moments, and then boom. Oprah interrupted him, chimed in, and said, do you mean moments away from the church accepting it? And he answered, absolutely, I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes, here's what he says, letters from 2,000 years ago as its best defense. And I tell you, he is an illustration of relying on dreams, his own perspective, his own thoughts. I know better than all these old letters. And of course, as he does here, typically they appeal to culture and to a false, twisted notion of compassion. And I I could give you names. I would just listen to an interview with T.D. Jakes. Asked him about this area, homosexuality. He says, well, I've evolved on this, and I'm evolving. Do you hear the hiss behind that? Scripture's not evolving. God's not evolving on this, is he? Plain as day. 
So they rely on their dreams, and then they do this. They defile the flesh, which is the result, right? When you start relying on yourself rather than Scripture, you end up defiling the flesh. And here's a pro tip. Here's a pro tip. If something that historically, through the lens of Scripture, in the body of Christ has been seen as a sin, and all of a sudden people say, well, maybe it's not, mm, maybe some alarms should go off in your thinking. Maybe you should see some red flags. And then he goes on to say, they reject authority, which is what you do, right, when you replace the word of God by relying on your own dreams, your own thoughts, your own perspective, your own visions, your own prophecies. Did God really say, I am a better authority than the word of God? Well, he goes on. He says, blasphemes the glorious ones. Now, I, I want to unpack this just a little bit. What does it mean they blaspheme the glorious ones? What this is, the glorious ones here are actually angels, fallen angels, demons. And you might say, well, how would a fallen angel be glorious? Well, not glorious in the sense of holy, right? But they, they, there's a certain weight they have, a certain glory, because they're supernatural and because they're powerful. Doesn't it say in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers? Does it not say in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? Does it not say in 2 Corinthians 4 that God, small g, of this age, Satan has blinded the minds of those who believe not? So there is a fallen glory. And that, he, he's talking about demons right here. He says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, look at verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what's going on? Here's what's going on right here. Even unfallen angels of the highest echelon, you got cherubim and seraphim, and here, an archangel. Even an archangel, I'd say that archangel, that unfallen archangel would have some, some clout, right? But he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment on the devil in contending for the body of Moses. Rather, what did he say? The Lord rebuke you. You get the point? Now, let me, let me, let me flesh this out a little bit more. You might say, well, I, this, this quote right here about contending for the body of Moses with the devil and Archie. I, I don't remember reading that in the Old Testament. You know why? Because it ain't there. All he is doing is quoting from ancient non-biblical literature that the Jews would have been familiar with. Paul does the same thing right on Mars Hill. Doesn't he quote some poets that people then would have been familiar with? And he's quoting from that well-known Testament of Moses, the Jews would have known of this book in that day. He's quoting to, to make this point. Here it is. That false teachers strut around like they have special superpowers over demons. Blasphemously arrogant. How many times have you turned on something and say like, I don't know, TBN? And there's some prosperity preacher who says, I rebuke you, Satan. 
I rebuke you, demon of this, right? Demon of, you know, uh, a bad transmission, okay? There's out there, I think, really. I got one in my car a while back. Demon of this, demon of that, right? You do this, you do that, and you can go on and on. That's what, that's what they do. But I would suspect most of us here would not fall for, say, the antics of Benny Hinn. I don't think. Maybe there would be somebody. We should talk if you think he's kosher, because he's not. But I do think that there would be people here who would fall for the teaching of, say, a guy named Bill Johnson in Bethel Church. Now, I've been, I've been fighting covering this for a long time. Pastor Fleet said, you should do a Sunday school message on this. I'm like, this doesn't really excite me. I just like to preach Christ. But about Thursday, as I was finishing up preparation for the sermon, I thought, this is a guy who illustrates what he says right here, blaspheme the, the glorious one. So you may not know who Bill Johnson is. He pastors a church called Bethel Church out in Redding, California. And here's just some quotes from him. God wants to take us farther, and we can only get there by following signs. Our present understanding of Scripture can only take us so far. Now, we can always understand Scripture more, no problem there. But we need signs to go farther with God? Didn't we just hit in Matthew, an evil and adulterous generation does what? Seeks after signs. He goes on to say, Christians need to stop focusing on our need to protect ourselves from deception. Guess he doesn't like the book of Jude. And I would agree that's all some people do, and that would be misshapen the other direction for sure. But this is here for a reason, right? And instead, we must hunger for him, must be seen in a lustful pursuit of spiritual gifts. And he sells books, he preaches sermons, he holds conferences on how to access, this is it, I just read something last night, how to access the spiritual realm. Here's the key. And I, the enlightened, can give it to you. He argues that if the gospel proclamation is not accompanied by signs and wonders, it is a different gospel. And the pursuit of signs and wonders has led to a litany of bizarre and sometimes Blasphemous spiritual practice in, in, in the Bethel movement. So, for instance, there was this claim, and some of you are aware of this, that during one of their worship services, gold dust came down. A gold dust that somebody remarked looks suspiciously like the glitter you can purchase at your local arts and crafts store, by the way, okay? We also report feathers appearing in their worship services, which they claim to belong to angels. Um, some of the leaders there practice what is called grave sucking or grave soaking, where they lay atop the graves of famous dead Christians to suck the anointing that they believe is still contained in those bones, mis-isogeting an Old Testament passage to support that. They have something called prophetic cards they use, which are a not-too-distant cousin of tarot cards. Um, they teach that there are a variety of angels, indeed there are, messenger angels, healing angels, fire angels, so they start to break that down more than Scripture does. And they say that the angels are laying dormant until someone in faith wakes them up, and how do you wake up the angels? You blow the shofar, an Old Testament horn, and you shout, 
wakey, wakey. And then the angels come to do your beck and call. I wish it was that easy. People in the Bethel movement believe that raising the dead should be something that we aspire to. As a result, they have a dead-raising team, and they chase ambulances and go to hospitals and do all this. But uh, to this date, there's uh, no record of any raising from the dead. Uh, the leaders, Bill Johnson and Chris Valentine, Chris Valentine, by the way, prophesied dogmatically that our next president, this is last election was going to be Donald Trump. And then when everything went down, he recanted of that. And then he said, oh, no, it's actually going to happen. And I thought prophets were like supposed to bat a thousand, right? And if not, you might not see sunset, right? Go back to Deuteronomy 18 and 22. Anyway, he and Bill Johnson believe that the way to explore the mysteries of God is it's hidden in sound and light and vibrations and frequencies and energy and quantum physics. And I don't really know what he's saying. Otherwise, it just sounds new age. They say that's how we can get another Pentecost. And they attack the deity of Christ. They say they believe in the full deity of Christ on one hand, and then they actually go back to an old, old heresy that the early church condemned, which says that Jesus not only became, is God incarnate, but he actually stopped, in a sense, being God, which is not what Philippians 2 at all teaches. Here's some quotes. Jesus Christ said of himself, the son can do nothing. He had no supernatural capabilities whatsoever. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in, re in right relationship to God, not as God. And by the way, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the fulcrum. They say if he only did it merely as a human, then, then of course we should be doing the same things that he did. And then they fabricate that. Here's another quote. Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. He couldn't cast out devils. He had no ability to raise the dead. He said of himself in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of himself. He set aside his divinity. What? No, he, that's not what the kenosis teaches. He did miracles as a man in right relationship with God because he is setting forth as a model for us. Jesus so emptied himself that he was incapable of doing what was required of him by the Father without the Father's help. I could just go on and on and on. But there is a reason, for instance, and we, we don't do the music here anymore, and it really wasn't my thought. It was actually a couple of our music musicians. I wasn't really aware of all this stuff. I'm just plugging away and serving. And, and, and a couple of people in the music team put some literature in my hands and made me aware of this. I'm like, oh, yeah, there, there, there's some problems here. And I'm just saying, verse, well, let me just go, let's go back to the text for the sake of time. Verse 10. No wonder it says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, what he's saying is um, they blaspheme supernatural things, mostly God himself, and by giving in to animal instincts to do whatever their flesh wants, they bring about their own destruction. Hence, verse 11, woe to them. What does woe mean? Have a great day? Catch you later for coffee? What does woe mean? That's a strong word. We just, we looked at it in Matthew. So much of this connection with Matthew, I'm, I'm seeing. Jesus pronounced woes on Chorazim and Bethsaida. And wait till we get to Matthew 23, seven woes. Woe is a pronouncement of impending doom and judgment unless you repent. And then he gives these three other Old Testament examples, which I hit quickly. He says, he's, remember, we're just looking at the tactics of false teachers. They walked in the way of Cain. Now, what did Cain do? 
Cain had an offering that, is, that the Lord did not accept. He accepted his brother Abel's offering. You remember that? He gets real mad. And God comes to him with a word of graceful and gracious correction. He says, now be careful. Be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door. Does he listen to the Lord's loving rebuke? No, he ignores the counsel and goes on to murder his brother. False teachers practice the way of Cain. They will not listen to counsel, and they go on contributing to the spiritual murder of others. Walked in the way of Cain, and then it goes on to say, yo, with me, this is a lot here, I get it. Yo, with me? He goes on to say, for the sake of gain, and abandoned himself for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Now, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. He was a prophet for hire. He wasn't a very good one because every time they tried to get him to curse Israel, all he could do was bless them. But he was, he was doing that for, for, for the bank, the stacks on paper. He's doing this for, for money. And false prophets prostitute God for money. I mean, it, it's an industry, isn't it? it is a, it's an American industry. God will bless you if you only plant a seed. And by the way, that seed is $1,000 towards me. And if it doesn't come to pass, it's just because you didn't have enough faith when you planted that seed. What a clever way to add guilt to that manipulation. And they particularly prey on vulnerable people, maybe super impoverished people or somebody, or somebody very sick. I mean, let's, I'll try about anything when I'm sick. Drink this. Okay, yeah, sure. And they, they pray on it. I remember when we lived in South Bend, Indiana, the first place I served in ministry, Community Baptist Church, and there was a lady with her son who lived right behind us, and there was the, uh, t- like the regional TBN, Lachey or Lachey Broadcasting Network. I think he was here, you remember, because he lived in Indiana for a while. But um, I remember uh, that pr- one of the preachers on their programs looking into the, uh, into the camera and saying, there is a woman here, you were just left by your husband, you're down to your last $600. If you send that in to me, God will bless you. And we had this lady and her son over for dinner. And I brought that up. And let me just say mildly, I was... <laughs> It got quite heated when I explained that is of, that is of the devil. Another time I called into that same uh, television broadcasting station and they were, they were doing a plant a seed thing. And I called in and I said, hey, I was listening to the preacher just on, on, the, on the program that you have airing right now and I'm told that if I send you an offering, I'll receive fourfold in response. Is that right? Lady in the phone bank says, yeah, that's exactly right. I said, well, you know what? I'll... I want to do you right. I want you to get the better deal. Would you send me the seed, and then you get the fourfold return? And she, uh, I, she said, oh, I can't do that. I said, no, please ask somebody. And I heard her yell down the phone bank, this guy wants us too. That's just the madness of what they, they, they're talking about, right? And then it goes on to say they perished in Korah's rebellion. Number 16, Korah and his crew thought they knew better than Moses and Aaron and the rest of them. It's like when people say, you know, let's just have a little quiet meeting because we don't really think they know what's going on and we'll serve you better. And it led to their destruction. The ground opened up, there was fire and all the rest. Number two, 
and I got to fly now. Beware of their tactics. Number three, know what they promise you they can't deliver on. They're full of empty promises. We've already seen that. But here he moves from biblical illustrations and non-canonical references to illustrations from everyday life. Just to make the point, they don't deliver what they promise. Okay, here it is, real quick. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Now, a love feast was basically the way the early church, they had communion and they had a meal together. I, don't, I think we've done that maybe once here. It's a really beautiful thing. But he says they're hidden reefs at your love feast. Think of a coral reef, beautiful enough, but if a ship doesn't see it and it goes over, it peels off the hull and plunges people to a drowning death. And these people might seem nice enough in the body of Christ, but in the end, none of what they promise comes to pass. Instead, they greatly injure people. They feast with you without fear. Then he says, they're shepherds feeding themselves. Such people with such novel insights claim to really be caring for people, but in the end, in the end they're only really shepherding or caring for themselves. They're waterless clouds swept, al- swept along by winds. And I, when, I, when I read that, I thought, I can't remember the name of the movie. It was an old Western movie where uh, the town out west is just hit by a massive drought. The land is cracked, nothing's growing. They end up having to send their families back east to survive. The the men stay there. And one day, they see some dark clouds off on the horizon. And the wind's blowing the clouds that way. And they're they're starting to celebrate. Finally, we're going to have torrential rain. And then in that western, the clouds came by and blew over and never dropped rain. And that's what he's saying these guys are like. They promise but they actually, the promises blow over and they never actually bring the reviving, refreshing rain they promise. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice uprooted. Now, fruit trees are supposed to give you what? Fruit. These can't because they're not just once dead. What does he say? Twice dead, which I think is a reference to the next level depravity they plunge themselves into by attempting to use the things of God for personal gain and for hurting people along the way because they have no roots in the truth. And doesn't Jesus again say in Matthew chapter 7, you shall know a teacher by his or her fruit. And then you have this, wander, okay, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Now, when you think of the waves and you think of the coast, you can think of some beautiful seas. I think of the North Carolina, uh, Kitty Hawk and the Outer Banks and the beautiful seascape and the smell of the ocean and, and, and the fresh seafood you can get and the walks along the beach and the seashells you can gather. That's not the picture here. Imagine a storm after a massive sea and all that green foam that comes up on the shore or maybe it's a polluted body of water and along with the foam there's pieces of plastic and garbage uh, floating about. That's the picture here. They don't, they're not that nice beach scene. No, it's just chaos and pollution and toxicity. And finally, he says, they're wandering stars. Do you know what stars were used for in the ancient world? They still are as backup today. What stars are used for in the ancient world? 
navigation. They're wandering stars. You get the point? They're supposed to provide spiritual navigation, but instead, they only bring people to destruction. So don't be gullible. He's saying, don't be gullible. Know that what they promise you, they can't deliver on. No wonder this little section ends with these words, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So let me say this, and I don't say this with any great amount of joy. There is a special place in hell for people who seek to use God for personal gain and destroy others on the way. God is pretty serious about this. There's a guy that went on a missionary trip to South Africa. It was by way of boat down small little waterways. Most every village they got to, people would come out, help them get their boats ashore, and they would come and they would minister physical help, food, medicine, and they would share the gospel. Almost every village was so receptive. But they got to one village, and only one person came out to receive them at the waterfront, and everybody was very, uh, you know, kind of close-armed with them and had a cold shoulder, and they said, well, what's going on here? Well, what they found out is not too long earlier, another group of Christians had come through. And they had said, now, if you plant some seeds with us, that is, give us some of your resources, pay us whatever currency they had, guess what will happen? You'll have great crops. Those closed wombs will empty up and a whole bunch of other blessings. And then they took their money, blew out of town, and none of those blessings ever came. And as a result, oh, that's Christianity? That's, I, I don't want that. Double judgment for such people who misrepresent God. And that leads to the final thing that we see in this text, that we should fear the judgment coming to false teachers. We should fear the judgment. Verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, once again, you might say, I don't remember reading that in the Old Testament. And again, it's because it's not there. Last time he quoted from a Testament of Moses, this is called the first book of Enoch. Something, again, ancient Jewish literature, the Jews would have been aware of it. All he's doing is making the point that the Bible itself asserts that when Jesus Christ returns, he is going to judge the ungodly. And doesn't he say ungodly like 48 times in these verses? Like four times, literally. But did you, ungodly? Did you read it? Ungodly? Ungodliness? Ungodly? And one of the ungodliest things a person can do is twist and abuse the word of God for personal gain as they blaspheme God and bring great harm to other image bearers. Now, again, they might appear godly and winsome and sympathetic and sensitive and understanding and kind and gentle and gracious and all the rest. But verse 16 just pulls the mask off, doesn't it? In the end, they're grumblers. They're malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now listen to how Revelation 19 describes 
how this is going to go down because false teaching inflames the nostrils of the living God. John writes, after this I saw heaven open and behold a great horse, a great white horse. He goes on to say, sitting on it is one who is called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with, he, with, with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now listen. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God's nostrils are inflamed against those who twist the word and bring injury to image bearers. You should fear the judgment coming to them. But we should, in fact, fear what false teachers so often won't tell people about the judgment that we all deserve. All of us. Because that word ungodly is actually applicable, well, not just to false teachers, there's a next level on godliness, but to all of us. We're all in ourselves ungodly. Now, I'm not going to tell you that because that's not going to get you to send a seed in. That's not going to tell you to like their podcast and do all the rest. That's not going to do that and come to their conference. But in the end, that's who we all are in ourselves, ungodly, sinful, rebellious. I'm going to step over my boundaries the boundaries that you give me, rather, and I'm going to make my own boundaries. God, that's what humanity's always been doing. My boundaries. My boundaries. We all here commit apostasy. We believe, and then we unbelieve, don't we? We drift away. We say, God, you're not good, you're not right, and all this and that. We know better. We're all in ourselves ungodly, but the good news of the gospel is Romans 5. God justifies the ungodly by faith. And there's, this, there's these gravy dripping verses which says, for while we were still weak, at the very right time, Christ, hallelujah, died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps some would even dare to die for a good man. But God, he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more than we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the blood of his son, how much more than having been reconciled by his death we, we, sh we shall be saved by his life. And then he goes, what does it say after that? Because I, I guess the verse is behind me. You're magical. I don't know how you ever got those. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Do you get that word rejoice? Christians should be fake joyful, but there ought to be a deep root of joy. Because, as Pastor Cleet talked about in adult Sunday school, our biggest problem has been taken care of alienation to God. 
So, a lot in this section, but I would say this gospel, the only way we can be right with God, Romans 5, 6 through 11, I would say that's worth contending for, wouldn't you? And that's exactly the call of the book of Jude. Not to make us contentious Christians, but to make us contending Christians because the gospel is worth contending for and image bearers are precious in his sight. So how should you respond to this straightforward section? If you're a false teacher and they come at all size, shapes, and levels, you should repent while you still have opportunity. I quickly hit this, not to the extent that I anticipated, but people say, well, what's the difference between a false teacher um, and someone just teaching some error? That's a good question, right? Like, you know, there's all kind of gradients and stuff like that. What's the difference? And I wrote something out, and I'm not going to give you all of it. Um, first of all, all of us teach wrongly at some point, right? Uh, that, that little two-hour boot camp on Jude, the guy said that he took off the Internet his first three years of sermons. I think I have a lot of sermons I would like to take off the internet, okay? And I'm sure it'll be in the future, right? We're all, we're all going to teach a rye. We're going to teach a miss and all, all of that. So is there, there's two things that you see, trajectory and teachability. Like what is someone's trajectory? Have they, for instance, taught a biblical view on sexuality and now they're evolving on that? Well, that's, that's a trajectory. No, that's a downward spiral, right? Or is there trajectory to greater and greater biblical faithfulness? And then is there teachability? Is there teachability? You have an example. Remember Apollos in, in, the, in, the, in the, the book of Acts? The guy was gifted. He was quoting scripture, but he didn't have everything right. And Aquila and Priscilla come along, and they teach the way of God more clearly and he even more powerfully then refutes the Jews and proclaims the gospel. He's an example of someone, and hopefully we're all like that. We're all growing. We're teachable, and there's a trajectory that is good and upward. So if you're a false teacher, you need to repent. If you're a Christian, here's the call. Y'all have nothing to do with false teachers. There's a point when you say, well, I eat the meat and spit out the bones, where you're saying, I would say, well, that meat has got some cyanide in it as well. Do not let sentimentality and church background get in the way of discernment and contend for the gospel. 